is actually going to be our final sermon from the book of Titus. Yes, um, we have spent 31 different Sundays covering this compact epistle. And I know if you're like me, you've been blessed just to see um, what Paul shared and his, uh, his encouragement to the church. And throughout the journey through the book, I, I hope that you've noticed Paul's attention and his passion for the ministry. It's just woven into the fabric of the letter throughout. So much so that at the beginning of the letter, he shared the ministry motive in the opening verse in verse 1 that he was writing for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. Paul's heartbeat was for the continued growth of God's people in the faith for the sake of the church, for the sake of the ministry. And then he provided instruction for ministry leaders, and then he dealt with ministry threats when he talked about the false teachers in the chapter 1. And then he provides testimonies, ministry testimonies uh, for certain groups within the people, all before, uh, at the end of chapter 2, he zeroed in on the gospel uh, and distilling its impact not only in our justification but in our continued sanctification as believers. And then, in chapter 3, he provides ministry mandates for us and gives us directions to what our testimonies are to look like to the watching world in a public setting. How we relate to the state and the governing authorities that God has placed in our lives. How we come across to the lost by our obedience and our ongoing ministry testimonies to them as well that should open up avenues for the gospel and spiritual conversations. And then in the last couple Sundays, we had the opportunity to focus on the instructions that Paul provides to help us maintain unity in ministry, including how we are to handle factious or divisive people within the church. And there are three different categories of factious people, which we covered last week. And as the scripture affirms, unity in the church reflects the very heartbeat of God for the church. And the best way to maintain unity in the church is for leaders and members alike to get your minds off our, we need to get our minds off ourselves and get our minds on the Lord and serving others. William Barclay wrote, half the trouble that arises in the church concerns rights, privileges, places, and prestige. Someone has not been given his or her place. Someone has not been thanked. Someone has been neglected. Someone has been given a more prominent place on the platform than somebody else. And there is division. Another commentator added this. Most of our divisions are personality driven, not issue driven. We often think we are fighting for principle when we are just defending our own ego. We're jealous that someone else is in the limelight instead of us. Or we're angry because someone hurt our feelings. But when we get our minds off of ourselves and onto serving other people, unity is cultivated. There was even bickering and division in the upper room on the night of the Last Supper. The disciples were fighting about who was the most important. They were so egotistical that none of them would dare stoop to wash the feet of the others. Jesus got a basin of water and a towel, washed their feet, and said, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. And the commentator finished by saying this, There is hardly ever any bickering over the basin. Jesus said, The greatest among you will be your servant. What words for us to take to heart. And as we read these final verses of Paul's letter to the believers on the island of Crete, uh, directly to Titus, we can't help but notice their consideration that they had for one another. The Apostle Paul knew that in order for the gospel to progress, for the ministry to grow, that it was going to involve a unified team effort by the church. Let's read the final four verses of Titus chapter 3 together, beginning in verse 12. 
And this is what it has for us. And I'm reading from the New American Standard. Verse 12. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Here Paul is closing out his letter to Titus and he's writing about personal concerns and he's using this sermon uh, or excuse me the 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 farewell to to do so and uh, the title of the message is saying farewell to Titus and it actually there's double entendre taking place there's a double meaning Paul's saying farewell to Titus and as we have our last message today we'll be saying farewell to Titus And when we read this farewell, initially it may appear that there isn't much to consider. But because the Apostle Paul was so focused on ministry, there's actually more than what our initial impression might reveal. And so from this passage, I I want us to consider three principles from Paul's farewell to Titus that can help you and I prepare intentionally, purposefully, strategically, however you want to say that. I I was trying to settle on a word there. For our current and future ministry. Three principles from Paul's farewell to Titus that can help us prepare intentionally for current and future ministry. And to some degree, this message is going to transcend the book of Titus as we look at the life and the ministry of the Apostle Paul. But I want to use this passage as a platform to draw out these principles. The life of the Apostle Paul can serve as a great example for us. He was a man that loved the Lord Jesus Christ and had an incredible passion for the gospel. And we see evidence of this throughout his 13 New Testament epistles that he penned. He loved the church and he was intentional about making disciples. He understood the importance of growing deeper in our faith and drawing near to Christ. There's so much that we can say about God's work in and through the life of the Apostle Paul. And so it's going to serve us well to consider three principles from this farewell passage. And it's my hope that they'll encourage our hearts to prepare intentionally for our current and future ministry in the church. They're listed in your notes. And the first principle is to support the we concept. The Christian life by divine design involves a we mindset. As no individual can thrive spiritually in ministry by flying solo. We need the help of God and we need the help of others. And Paul allows us to see an example of this in verses 12 and 13. The second principle is to embrace your ongoing discipleship. We'll talk about what this means and the discipleship implications of being an ongoing learner. In verse 14, Paul features a resounding theme that he's mentioned Throughout the letter. And then, third and final principle is to put a smile on your faith. After we look closely at these first two principles, it's going to make a little bit more sense. And Paul writes the very last verse Christian joy is found in fellowship, Christian joy is found in our service of the Lord and service of one to another. Three principles from Paul's farewell to Titus that can help you and I prepare intentionally for current. And future ministry. Let's get started with principle number one support the we concept. And we're going to focus on verses 12 and 13, which I'm going to read for us. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. And just two Verses, the Apostle Paul has made references to five other people outside of himself. And these are some names. I was actually uh, joking around with one of our um, expecting fathers to be, and I said, Hey, tomorrow's sermon, I'm going to have five good names for sons for you that you can consider. I mean, I don't think anyone's staked the claim in Tychicus yet, okay? So it's wide open. 
It's cute. You can even shorten it to tie. It's adorable, all right? A little, little tie running around. Our e, I asked you if you were an Artemis, but you, you let me know that you were an Arthur, so I try to give you some, give you some props as well. <laughs> These were men that Paul built ministry relationships with, and Paul certainly grasped the importance of supporting the we concept by working with others, and he did so in three ways that are reflected in our subpoints: by sending help, by requesting help, and by seeking additional ways to help. First, he did so by sending help. In the beginning of verse 12, he says to Titus, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you. And it's here that we learn that Paul's intent was to relieve Titus of his duties. And he was going to send Artemis. We don't know a whole lot about who he was because he's only mentioned here in the New Testament. But tradition tells us that he was one of the 70 disciples in the book of Acts And then he also served as the bishop of Lystra, which would have been Timothy's hometown. The second name mentioned is Tychicus, and here's a little history on him. He was a well-known disciple from Asia Minor, and he traveled extensively with the Apostle Paul. He was with him when he was heading to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 20, and he also would have been present for that very emotional farewell that Paul had with the Ephesian elders. He was apparently with Paul in his first Roman imprisonment and was expected to brief the believers in Ephesus and Colossae regarding Paul's condition. And he's mentioned at the end of both of Paul's letters to the Ephesians and Colossians. Tychicus was most likely the carrier of those letters from Rome. His mention here in Titus indicates that Tychicus apparently rejoined the Apostle Paul after his release from his first Roman imprisonment. And in Colossians 4.7, Paul describes him as a beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord. The longest description about him is shared by Paul in Ephesians 6.21 and 22 where Paul says this, but that you also may know about my circumstances, how I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us, and that he may comfort your hearts. Apparently, Tychicus was a very gifted shepherd, and he was willing to carry out any assignment given to him by the Apostle Paul. And now all of a sudden that name's starting to mean a little bit more to some of the, 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 the pregnant moms, right? He was, a, he was a faithful, faithful servant of the Lord. And Paul focused on the we concept and, and thought intentionally about ministry and how to make the most effective ministry moves for the prosperity of the church. Anyone in the church a fan of playing chess? Any chess players out there? Uh, we, we got a couple. What about checkers? Okay, we're gonna, I better see some kids' hands go up. We got a few more, maybe. Some, some checkers. I, me, I'm not a big fan of board games. In fact, I spell board B-O-R-E-D when it comes to games. But I will admit that chess and checkers intrigue me. And anyone who's played these games understands that in order to do well, you just don't think about your next move, right? The really good players are able to calculate and think about several moves ahead. In fact, the world champion chess players can in some ways see an entire game take place and as they gain insight into their opponent how it's going to unfold. And supporting the we concept in ministry is no different. It's called forecasting. And wisdom encourages believers to anticipate needs when making ministry decisions. And oftentimes this means arranging for help. And the Apostle Paul was very efficient at this. And he not only anticipated the next move, but just like a good chess player, he would be able to see several moves ahead. And we see evidence of this as he sent help in advance to replace the leader's that God might send elsewhere. And as we'll see under our second subpoint, he also anticipated 
his own needs by requesting help. Verse 12 continues, Make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. This phrase, make every effort to come to me, is the precise phrase that Paul would later use to urge Timothy to come to him in his last Roman imprisonment shortly before his martyrdom at the command of Caesar in 2 Timothy 4.9. And in the Greek, it demands that action be taken without delay. And the personal nature of the command is seen in the prepositional phrase, to me. He was calling him to me. And Paul was at, or was going to be at Nicopolis. And so Titus's obedience to meet Paul in Nicopolis was going to require a little bit. Where was he? He was on the island of Crete. There's going to be an extensive journey to get to Nicopolis. And the precise identification of Nicopolis is disputed by some. The name actually means uh, two words in the Greek, city, and it's nikos, which is victory in the, in the Greek. And it's actually those who are fans of Nike tennis shoes. That is the, the, the word that, uh, uh, in the Greek that, we get, that they use to uh, form uh, the word Nike. It was said to be a major city situated near the eastern shores of the Adriatic Sea in Greece, which was a main route for travel by land and sea. And the fact that Paul was planning on wintering there in, sight, in a site west of most of his previous labors, it may indicate that he was basically prepping his mind to take the gospel and, and go beyond further. And we see him mention his desire to go to Spain and at the end of Romans chapter 15. So sometimes our ministry forecast can be influenced by the weather forecast, as was the case with the Apostle Paul who had to hunker down for the winter. He requested Titus's help, which again features the fact that Paul understood the we concept in ministry. Listen, the strategic advance of the gospel requires a team effort, a group effort. And for ministry to progress, it is about a we concept. In our church, we've witnessed this reality just even as it's related to missions when back in 2009, Marcus and Amy Denny were sent over to, to basically they took over the ministry for Peter and Sonia Smith, right? In, in the Czech Republic. Help was sent. And then recently, we sent help through our sisters Gina and Julia, who are there serving now. And Christ Our Hope, a church up in Washington, is doing what? They're, they prepared, did they already send the person? They're, they're about to send another person over to check to assist with the ministry there. We met last week just to have a meeting after the service to find out who was interested in going to check this summer to serve on the team. And praise God, we had over 25 people who uh, showed up for that meeting to, to find out more. Our elders communicate regularly with Marcus and just had a, a Skype call um, with him this, this week. I wasn't able to participate in that call, but our elders were able to talk to Marcus and, and find out what his needs are and how our church can continue to support the ministry labors there. And this involves ministry forecasting. And us actually going into the, the summer is strategic because those who have been on the trip and because our church has heard so much about the ministry that takes place there, there's an English camp that will take place in the summer. And there are many moving parts to consider. Yet this allows us to support the we concept in ministry. Imagine something for, uh, uh, I want you to think about this. What the ministry would look like if Cornerstone or no other churches sent any help over to the Czech Republic. What would the ministry look like if Marcus, if we had no communication with him and he didn't let us know about his requests? For help and what he needed. This is how ministry is to function. As, as we work together, leaning on each other by sending help and asking for help. And I was 
fellowship and just with a brother yesterday in the church and I was actually thinking about it it was such a, a joy to think about since the inception of the church that the body the church the organism of the church body has always worked together there's always been a we concept so that the body could grow and as believers in Christ we're united with all of that labor from eternity past as the church grows and as the body grows as we get bigger and bigger as a body the head gets exalted higher and higher, and Christ is honored more and more. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the apostle Paul describes how the body of Christ works together. And though the context is actually speaking of spiritual gifts, there's a principle that Paul makes, and that's that we desperately need each other. Why do we need to support the we concept of ministry? Because we desperately need each other. And it's the way that God has is, is organized it. We can't do it alone. There's no ministry that we can do alone. We, we need one another. And verse 18 even says that God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he has desired. Wow. We need each other according to his divine design in the church. Do you see yourself as an important part of the body? How does the Lord intend you to use you in greater capacity to serve and support the body? And... We'll have a chance to talk more about this as we progress. But what a joy that, that God has placed you, my friend, right here at Cornerstone for a specific purpose. That God has you a part of this body. That you are a part of this church because you perform something and you contribute to the body. And that's his desire for you. Beautiful to think about. Well, there's a, a third sub-point under our first point. You and I can support the we concept in ministry by sending help. We can support it by requesting help. And thirdly, by seeking ways to help. Notice what Paul says in verse 13 to Titus. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Scripture is silent about Zenos. He's only mentioned here, so we can only speculate about him. But more than likely, he and Apollos may have delivered this letter to Titus. And all that Paul shares is that he's a lawyer. And it could be that maybe there were more, there was more than one Zenos that both Paul and Titus knew. And so Paul referred to him by his trade. Zenos, the lawyer. And the word lawyer is used in the Gospels to describe an expert in the Mosaic Law. And some speculate that Paul sent Zenos the lawyer and Apollos, who was mighty in the scriptures. And yes, this is the same Apollos that Aquila and Priscilla ministered to in Acts chapter 18. And that Paul was intentional and he brought them together so that they could go over and handle the disputes about the Mosaic Law mentioned in Titus 3.9. Pretty interesting to think about. But again, Scripture doesn't say it directly. and we, All we can do is speculate. But what we can know for certain is that Paul asked Titus to diligently help them. And the root meaning of this word help means to send on forth or to send on. And it oftentimes implies providing money or supplies for the needs of the journey ahead. So it fits our point well because it's sending them on with the support, with the we concept. Paul's normal use of this word comes at the end of his letters when he would describe the assistance the recipients are to provide him or someone as he's sending them as they pass through a region. And he uses this adverb diligently to intensify the picture. And the purpose statement at the end of the verse help drives home our subpoint when it says, so that nothing is lacking for them. 
As you and I support the we concept, we want to be seeking ways to help and support those who are laboring in the ministry so that nothing, nothing is lacking for them. One commentator said, our most fruitful service may be found in helping others bear fruit. And it's so true. You know, you might be somebody here that's not going to be able to go on the missions trip to Czech Republic this summer, but you can team up, right? You can support. You can financially support. You can prayerfully support. You can uh, contact us as elders, find out what supplies Marcus and Amy might need. There are ways for us to support the WE concept so that all of his needs are supplied. And it brings me great joy to be a member of a church that desires to make sure that missions and missionaries are supported well. It truly does. Well, Paul was encouraging Titus to make sure that Zenos and Apollos had everything they needed and the church was to be the resource to supply all of those needs. We're looking at three principles from Paul's farewell to Titus that can help you and I prepare intentionally for our current ministry as well as future ministry. And the first principle is to support the we concept in ministry. Principle number two is embrace your ongoing discipleship. What do I mean by that? Well, Paul's down to his final verses in his letter. And, and really, the last verse functions as this salutation, right? He's, he, he, the, the true sign-off. So this is our, our final verse of, of instruction that, that has a, a, major in, in, a major impact on us as, as believers. And so what would possibly be the words that Paul would be led by the Spirit of God to share at the end? He says this in verse 14. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. And this seems so fitting in light of the instruction that Paul just shared at the end of verse 13. And I want to build a bridge from our first principle to our second principle so that we don't see them really as two separate ones, but we see them working together so that we're intentional about current and future ministry. And grammatically, they're tied together because there's a conjunction and in the Greek. And so if you have an ESV Bible, your verse starts out with and. But for some reason, in the NAS, they left the word and out. I don't have an explanation for it, but in the translation, it was left out. And Paul continues the we concept of ministry, even in this verse that's evident at the start when he says, our people. He includes himself. And then the verse begins with an imperative. And in the Greek, it's thrust to the front of the sentence for emphasis, which is translated must learn. And it's in the present tense, referring to the fact that it's an ongoing action. You guys have heard me talk about the present tense plenty in, in the past. It actually means that it can be translated to make it your testimony. Make it your ongoing testimony to learn. And this is why the ministry pillar for our church says progressing in evangelism and discipleship. It doesn't, you know, say that we're, 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 we're done, right? That we've arrived, that it's completed. We're, we're works in progress. We're progressing in evangelism and discipleship. Our learning as disciples of Christ never ceases. And it's something that we need to embrace. And the fact that we must learn reminds us that it's not the normal course of the human heart and will. We need to be reprogrammed, renewed, regularly exhorted to be concerned for others' needs and to provide help. And as we embrace our ongoing discipleship, this allows us to learn three specific lessons that are spelled out in our subpoints. Letter A is to engage in good deeds. Letter B, to meet pressing needs. And letter C, to be fruitful. Well, let's go ahead and tackle letter A first. The theme of good deeds 
we're already familiar with this. This has dominated the letter, right? We've seen good deeds mentioned actually seven times in three chapters. Mentioned at the end of verse, or excuse me, chapter one in the context of of false teachers saying that they, they were unfit for any good deed. But then in chapter two, it's mentioned twice, and then it's mentioned four times in chapter three in verses one, five, eight, and 14. And so this is the same expression that was just used by, by Paul in verse 8. And those of us who were, if you were here with us a, a few Sundays ago, we talked about this verse at length, and we talked about putting feet on our faith. You remember that message? Right? And I actually even made a, a reference to our philosophy of ministry, which we want everybody in our church to know. This is why it's on banners. This is why, you know, the the. the, the the bright flashing lights are on back order, right? It's like, boop, boop, boop. It's like, what? okay, I was talking to another brother, and it's just like, hey, are they ever going to come up with different words on the front on those banners? No, nope. no. Nope. It's, a, it's, a, it's a biblical philosophy of ministry, and th- th- these are set before, so, and they're, they're intentional, and the, the scriptures are down there on the bottom. Why? Because they can help us to put feet on our faith. And for those of you who weren't here with us, you are able to go back and you can listen to that message from a couple of Sundays ago. But what I want to draw our attention to briefly is the verb to engage. Or your translation might say to devote as it addresses all believers. And remember, Paul's including himself with Titus. Paul embraced his ongoing discipleship as he learned how to sacrifice himself for the sake of others. It was something that he learned to do as God's instruction worked in conjunction with his gospel-redeemed heart, as he was led by the Holy Spirit, in conjunction with the instruction that he received. That's what allowed him to come to that place. So much so that he could write the following words, with a sincere heart in Philippians chapter 2, in verse 17, he says, But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice. I rejoice. He goes on, he says, Share my, I, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. I want that heart. I want to have that heart. I want to be able to say that and to say that I'm being poured out. But the reality is that I'm not. And I confess that. God's showing me weekly things in his word and how I fall short and how hard my heart is at times. And that there's sacrifices that I I need to make. And, and, And maybe you can relate in some way. Take encouragement. I want to give you encouragement. Because the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, when he had his heart converted, he, he didn't just turn into that person. It just didn't all start happening. What happened? There were, there were things that God had ordained for his lives and, and trials and things that he had to walk through, and he had to grow, and he had to apply, he had to apply the instruction, right? Paul didn't just arrive. He, he progressed in many ways, and he may have had a big head start on some of us because he was the Hebrew of Hebrews, right? But, but he progressed in evangelism and discipleship. And that brings me, that, that encourages me, you know? It encourages me. You know, as I was thinking about this, and this is just... Um, we're, we're going to have the opportunity just even with the SWOT analysis that's, that's going to come up. And we're, we're going to do what our, our church has historically done and talk about the strengths and weaknesses and opportunities and threats that are in the, in the ministry. 
I, I, I want to offer you an exhortation that you can take into that process. Right? Because we, we do want to hear from you. The elders want to hear from you. The ministry leaders, we want to know what we can do to, to move the ministry forward so that it's more effective and that it exalts Christ. But it can be easy in a setting like that, can it, to um, talk maybe more about a person rather than about the ministry. Right? And I want to make sure that we steer clear of that. In fact, we'll, we'll have an opportunity, as we, as we will, to, to provide feedback even about the preaching ministry. And I'm not the only one that stands behind this pulpit to preach God's word. Pastor David comes. Uh, Huey's taught. Marcus is taught from this pulpit. There are other people that will be teaching from this pulpit. And we want to know feedback in general. Now, I do a bulk of the teaching, right? But just... Just the, the, the references, right, as we talk about these things, that we focus on the ministry and that we would have guarded hearts as we go into that time. That we would have hearts like the Apostle Paul, that if a ministry is falling short, that we might even consider ways about how we might be able to pour ourselves out for the sake of that ministry as a drink offering. In what ways would God be challenging our own heart as we consider the needs? Well, letter B shares that it will also help us to meet pressing needs. And as verse 14 progresses, it says to meet pressing needs. The ESV translates it so as to help cases of urgent need. And the noun needs describes a need, a lack, a want, or difficulty. It describes those things which are necessary and indispensable. As we grow as disciples, it allows us to learn what pressing needs look like in the ministry. The ongoing need for prayer. The ongoing need for help. And as we, as we mature, we're going to have our heads on a swivel in the church. We're going to look for, for the opportunities. And that's another great opportunity for, for the SWOT analysis. It could be that a, maybe a ministry needs to, to be great, greater supported, right? There's deficiencies. Maybe there's more help that's needed with outreach, with prayer ministry, with youth, with children's ministries. And in the context, it refers back to the needs that Apollos and Zenos may have had when they passed through. But for application's sake, it can be applied to the pressing needs within the ministries of the local church. Needs in children's ministries, in pebbles, in, in boulders, in roots, in prayer. We need to, as a church family, meet the pressing needs from within as well. And we're a small church, and as a result, we, we need sometimes to wear more than one hat. We need to serve. And you know what? I, I, I rejoice in the elders. We, we, we talk about this all the time, how encouraged we are by so many servants who just are, are pouring themselves out. Such a blessing. Such a blessing. And the connection that I want us to make, when, when we lean on what we learn and embrace our ongoing discipleship, it helps us to see the opportunities that the Lord opens to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs. And our third and final sub-point is to be fruitful. The purpose statement, you'll notice at the end of verse 14, and they typically start out with the Hine clause, it's a so that. And that's the case here with verse 14. So that they will not be unfruitful. And it literally means without fruit. And outside of Paul, here, um, it, outside of Paul's use here, it's used in the parable of the soils in Mark 4 and Matthew 13. And it describes what happens to the seed when thorns grow up around it and choke it out. False teachers in Jude 12 are described as autumn trees without fruit. 
Peter speaks of laboring to lead a life that is neither, quote, useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ in 2 Peter 1.8. What does it take to be fruitful? First, we need to be spirit-filled and spirit-led as we, as we live that life. We, we will be fruitful as as the, the, the attitudes, the fruit of the Spirit is manifest in our life. And as we are Spirit-filled also, as we embrace the instruction, right, of God's Word, that is what encourages us, that's what stimulates us to be fruitful. We need to study, trust, and apply God's Word. And He'll guide and direct our ministry steps. But secondly, we have to be a good gardener. I want to talk to you just a little bit about that. And I know there's a few people probably with thumbs that are much greener than mine in, in the room. But weeds come up, right? We, we, we see it just maybe even in the little bit of landscaping that we have at our house, right? Weeds pop up. And it's so true in our Christian life that there are going to be weeds of the world that are going to pop up, that are going to try to, as the thorns and thistles did in Matthew 13 and in Mark before, they, 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 like the vine. And I remember preaching on this. Some of you were here when I talked about just even how vines can overtake a tree. They, 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 they grow up. It's gradually. And before you know it, they overtake a tree and they can actually t- steal its, its light. They steal the light from the tree. And as a result, the tree, what? Dies. It's unable to produce fruit. So we have to be mindful of this. We have to work toward removing the things of this world in our lives that consume large portions of our time that have no redemptive value or purpose. We need to do a spiritual inventory of our lives to see what changes the Lord might have us make. And our culture, let's just be honest, our culture is trying to entertain us to death. It wants us to be caught up in everything. I mean, what will possibly happen to you if you don't know about everybody's updated Facebook status and the course of what's going on with them throughout the day? If you didn't spend hours on it, what would happen to you? We know. Nothing. You'd be fine, right? And, you know, I may alluded to, and, and I enjoy, I still enjoy watching good football games, and, you know, um, we'll, we'll catch the highlights of what happens today. But, you know, honestly, for, you know, I mentioned this in previous sermons, that to spend all day on Saturday watching college football, to spend all day on Sunday watching NFL football, that's a waste. That's a waste. Be strategic. Yeah, you have a favorite team? Watch the game from start to finish. I'm with you. I'll cheer you on. I'll cheer for your team. Did I tell you the Seattle Seahawks are going to win the Super Bowl yet? <laughs> just because they are. I'm just, uh, you know, yeah. want to bet? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Hey, but honestly, the, the things that try to, to, to get a hold of us, that, that, that are, 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 are taking our time. They're taking our time. And it's precious. Brothers and sisters, it is precious time. And God's called us to make the most of our time because the days are evil. They are. I often wonder what Paul's letter would look like if he was writing directly to me. You know, if Paul had a chance to observe my life. What would he write directly to me? What are the things? I imagine his letter would probably be longer than three chapters, too. You know, we talk about this Cretan culture, this lazy, gluttonous, deceptive culture. I I can only imagine what the letter would look like if Paul was writing directly to the American culture. We do have everything we need in the Word. And I'm not trying to say that the letter would look different or provide any instruction. We have everything that we need. The Scriptures are sufficient. And we need to make sure that we're doing the gardening in our spiritual lives. 
That we're honestly not, listen, okay, I mentioned it in the sermon, and then we're going to walk out later today. Huey's going to teach on equipping hour, and then it's just going to be something that we may or may not think about it again. No, we have to be intentional. Again, this is intentional just even at the heart of this sermon, what I'm sharing, so that we can be prepared for our current ministry and our future ministry as a church family. We've looked at three principles from Paul's farewell to Titus that can help us intentionally, purposefully, strategically for current and future ministry. Principle number one, support the we concept. Principle number two, embrace your ongoing discipleship as a learner. Principle number three is this, Put a smile on your faith. Paul finishes his letter with greetings and a benediction. He says this, Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. And it's striking that Paul would start and end his letter in the same way by talking about the grace of of God. In verse 4, he opened up with grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And now in his farewell, he wishes us grace again, this time to all the Cretan believers. And oh, how much they needed it. If they were going to overcome the outstanding matters in Crete that needed to be addressed, the difficult, factious teachers if they were going to take these things to heart and live out their lives, they were going to need the grace of God. They were truly going to need it. Need it. And knowing that, Paul makes it his prayerful desire for them. Grace be with you all. And is our need any less? Is our need any less for the grace of God? Not at all. If we are to take to heart and live out our lives, all that this letter requires us to believe, and, and, and we are to do um, all the things that Paul has prescribed, we are going to need God's grace. And what a delightful thought it is that God's grace in the same quantities, in, in this, with the same intrinsic power that it was provided to the Cretans 2,000 years ago is aptly supplied for us today. May that grace be with us all. And that, my friends, should cause us all to put a smile on our faith. That should cause us all to put a smile on our faith. I'm looking for one more verse. I'm looking for one more verse. And we're going to find one that's going to be in another book. All right? The opportunity for you to lobby is still out. All right? Haven't come up with one definitely, but I will say that there's a front runner. I don't want to give any indication because um, if it ended up changing, if the Lord opened us up in a different direction, then perhaps there could be some disappointment. Well, we're going to go ahead and I'm going to pray. And during that time, the worship team's going to come up, and then we're going to prepare our hearts. What a fitting time, church. As we, we work through this letter, focus so much on the church that we would end it on a special day that only the Lord could coordinate, that we're going to celebrate communion together and celebrate our unity as a church family. Let's pray and prepare our hearts. Gracious God and Father, we are thankful for you and for the opportunity for us to see so many examples in the scriptures that can encourage our hearts. And Paul is such an encouragement to us all. And we thank you for the redemptive uh, testimony of his life because you saved him, because you took him from a man who used to persecute the church, who hated the church, who wanted nothing to do with Christians, and you did that work in his heart through the gospel. You transformed him through the power of Christ, through the gospel. 
We rejoice in how you've used him. And we pray that you would allow us to take the words to heart as we prepare now to celebrate communion. Help us to be transparent before you. Help us to acknowledge the fact that we're sinners and we're in desperate need of your grace just as the Cretan believers were. We ask, Father, that as we prepare our hearts now that you would um, allow us just to uh, confess any sin before you that we haven't confessed, that we would um, truly be transparent in our hearts and that if there is any believer here today that um, isn't prepared for communion and that you would just allow them to pass it up and to honor you in that regard that they would wait till the next time that we celebrate it and father i pray that uh, for those that are here maybe as guests that aren't believers that don't have hearts that are born again that you would allow today to be the day of salvation that you would allow them to see their need, their great need for Christ. And that there was only one perfect who has ever lived. One who paid the perfect price on the cross and paid for the sins of the world. And that if they will, in repentance and faith, trust in him, that they can be a child of yours. That they can be a part of the church. Be a unified member of the body. We pray that they would seek your forgiveness and that they would fall in the face, that they would truly be tired of their, their lives being lived without you and that today would be the day. And so, Father, as we celebrate communion, we ask that you would just make us apparent and aware of all of our sin and we thank you that the reality of believers' sins have been taken care of. The consequences, the debt has been paid. We bear it no more. But yet, you want us to confess so that our hearts are right before you. You want us to bring it to you. We ask that you allow us to do that. We give you praise for our study in the book of Titus. And there is no more fitting way to celebrate it than to celebrate communion together as a church family. We ask that you'll bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen.